And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Bubba and the Bat Flip, episode 16. We're going to re- go over some recent news as the hot stove is actually pretty warm for early December. And then we're going to go back and look back at the relief pitcher position from 2019, a little look ahead to 2020. I almost feel like we should have hit play about five minutes ago because we had a lot of inside the, the Bubba and the Bat Flip chat on this. But you can find me on Twitter at BDNTrick and breaking all this down with me, as always, on Twitter at Bat Flip Crazy. Toby, how are we doing, my friend? We're doing good, Bubba. You know, your last comment makes me think that we should do like a, a behind the podcast <laughs> show where it's like, you know, I don't know. We don't make people pay for our podcast, but we could like have like a subscribers only pre-podcast discussion that they have access to. <laughs> because my God, the amount of money people would pay yep. is just unbelievable. You, you think we bring it during the podcast? Mm-hmm. I mean, before the podcast starts, it is off the hook. Yep, gloves are off. It's, oh, uh, it's, man. it's pretty wild. Well, I, I feel beat up already. <laughs> and and you, if you think he looks bad, you should look at me. So, uh, it oh, was, man. Uh, <laughs> let's just say it was a lot of Hansel Rubble's talk. So oh, God. <laughs> He's so hot right now. He's so hot. So hot. He's so hot right now. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's what happens. When we look at relief pictures, it just takes us down a rabbit hole. That might not be for everyone's best interest, but it took us there. So we enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, let's talk some actual signings and trades. It's been a wild one here. There was a couple that took place before our last podcast, but I think it's better to kind of get a larger clump at a time here, at least for the first few. We'll start off with the big one, Cincinnati. Mike Moustakis finally gets paid after two years, of getting one-year deals, four-year, 64 mil, going to Cincy. For now to play second base, this is a very sneaky good move. At least I think so. Fantasy-wise, real-world-wise, real what are your thoughts on this, Toby? Yeah, I mean, I think all the way around, it's a, it's a, it's a positive move. I mean, um, I just think, you know, you couldn't have asked for a better place for Moustakas to land. I think mm-hmm. leaving Miller Park, you kind of felt like he was going to get a downgrade. You know, it just had to be a downgrade, right? But it actually doesn't end up being i saw a tweet by darren willman who uh does the Statcast uh page uh for baseball savant um and he he said that um moustakis uh would have hit 41 home runs if he had played uh at um at the great american ballpark last year which is the most of any stadium in major league baseball so this is literally the best fit uh for moustakis and his power um, really good for left-handed uh, hitters when it comes to power and runs, really. Um, same thing opposite field center, I guess, is a little bit of a downgrade maybe. But, um, you know, you see you see his monster shots. Most of them are to, uh, are to the pull side. So uh, yep. just a great move all around. It's really nice to see the Reds splashing a little cash. I know they're also rumored to be in on Zach Wheeler, among others. So uh, they got their guy after missing out on Yasmani Grandal, who I think was a target. What do you think about uh, about the moose? The moose landing in Cincinnati. This may be the first moose sighting in the history of the That's state insane. of Ohio. Yeah, the moose is loose, and uh, all you Skyline Chile people better watch out. But it, it, I think it's a great move. I'm a big Moustakas fan. I've got mad like every year when nobody would sign him. I just didn't understand it. And it was weird going into last season, myself and many others, were high on this Reds offense. Like I love Suarez and just the whole way it was built. So now you throw a moose into it. We get a full season of Aristis Aquino, the Punisher. Hopefully a full season of Nick Senzel. We can roster resource. It's, it, it's a pretty solid lineup. 
And then you mentioned the fact that they might go and get a Wheeler because they're rumored there or a couple other places. Like they got rid of Kevin Gossman, which kind of surprised me. I thought they might try to give him a rebuild. But, man, if you can throw Wheeler or another kind of upper-end starting pitcher to go to Gray, Castillo, and Bauer, uh, that's an outstanding rotation here. The bullpen's better than people think. This Reds team's going to be sneaky good. We're going to talk about the, the Brewers here in a minute. They are getting depleted left and right. So there might be a change in the guard. The Cubs are still in town. But the Reds, big-time move. And I love it for Moose. He'll keep his second-base eligibility. Um, I didn't look. I don't know if he played enough at third last year. So he might just be second-base only this uh, season. He, which He's both. He's second. Third. Okay, he got both. Good. Yeah. Uh, so he'll have that at least for one more year. And I have a hunch that he'll get some time in there. Let, when Eugenio Suarez gets days off, they'll move him over to third. So I think Moose might keep it for another year or so, which would be very nice. But I think it's a, a really, really solid move in that respect. Yeah, and just one thing. I, I know we talked about second base uh, earlier um, a few podcasts ago, but second base isn't super deep. And Moose is a really nice value, I think. I think he's going around like pick 125 maybe, uh, something – around there. I've never been like a huge, a huge moose guy in drafts, but I think because of the lack of depth at second base, he's a really interesting option. And especially in today's game, having that dual position eligibility mm-hmm. at both third base and second base makes him, um, makes him really, uh, really intriguing for me. And I just want to say like he, if you look at his splits from last year, he was really poor in the second half. Uh, both the underlying metrics point to a huge drop off in contact rate and you know, just not the same level of production. He was he was awesome in the first half last year. But if you'll remember, he did injure, I think it was like his wrist or he broke yeah. his hand or something like that. And it really, it had a clear impact on both his power and uh, his ability to make contact. And so I'm not, uh, I'm not concerned about that kind of drop in, in, um, in production in the second half. I think, I think as long as he's, his hand is healthy, then he should be good. Yeah, Moose should, Moose should be good to go. So uh, definitely a good – you know, it's hard to find 30, 35, 40 home run power at second base. So that's a, a big one there if you need – if you got speed already okay, it's a good option at second base for you for sure. Uh, let's talk about another Brewer that's leaving town. Yasmani Grandal, he made a big splash going to the Chicago White Sox four years, $73 million. So another guy that uh, gambled on himself and won – and you, you look at Mike Petriello and all the articles about such a great pitch framer, which is outstanding. He's also one of the best offensive catchers in all of baseball. You obviously have Real Muto. You have Wilson Contreras coming off a great year. But you got Yasmani Grandal, who rushed the resource, has penciled at the fourth spot for the Chicago White Sox, a guy with a humongous uh, OBP for catchers. He's got 20-plus, 25-plus uh, home run power. Going to be in the middle of that order, that very young, talented batting order. This is um, was a surprising move because it was the White Sox. I'm stoked that they did it. I think it's a great move, and it's going to just. I think its value is even better this year than last year. But what's your thoughts on Grandall? Yeah, I love the signing for the White Sox. Like so many people have said, I mean, the pitch framing that you mentioned is important. I wouldn't go too overboard, just in terms of like how much that's going to help uh, the different White Sox pitchers. Jeff Zimmerman, um, who's obviously a great follow on Twitter. Um, I think it's Jeff W at Jeff W Zinnerman. You should definitely be following Jeff for like all the articles and all the content he puts out. He's got a great mining the notes uh, article yes. that he's putting out about once a week that just has little blurbs from like local beat writers that, that are, that's super helpful. So definitely follow Jeff, but he had a tweet that was just looking at the fact that Reynaldo Lopez appeared to be the white Sox 
pitcher who would have had the, you know, a biggest improvement based on pitch framing. But even that was like a, a 0.3 decrease in his ERA from like 536 to 506 or something like that. So certainly can make a, a, a decent difference for those pitchers. But still, it's not, you know, it's not going to turn guys who have a, you know, a four and a half ERA into three and a half ERA guys like all of a sudden, right? Um, and so that's one piece. But with Grandal, when I when he got signed, I, I did a little bit of just like checking at the peripherals. And one thing I noticed is just he just stopped swinging at uh, pitches outside the zone last year. I mean, his O swing was very, very low. Um, his contact rate was up. Everything looked really good from that perspective. The only concern I have, um, and it's a very slight one, is just that he is going to a new league where he's going to need to learn the new pitchers. Um, you know, he did just sign this big contract. So um, that's like my only thing is pitchers will need to learn about him, but he'll also need to learn um, about the pitchers. But it's a great hitter's park. Um, so I really like that. And I think the biggest thing for me, and one of the reasons why I think I'm going to own a lot of Grandal this year, is that the White Sox have already indicated that not only is he going to play catcher, but he's also going to play first base and DH. And so with that in the fold now, you're looking at a guy who could potentially be catcher eligible and have, you know, and play, you know, barring, you know, hoping that he gets healthy, like 150 games, right? Yep. And yep. for a catcher, that is a going to be a massive difference just from accounting stats um, perspective and potentially from a home run perspective for him. And so, um, you know, for that reason, I, I think, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a huge boom for him. He's also going to a, a division with worse pitching because I think the NL central, I mean, I may be wrong about this, but the NL central had the reds, it had the Cubs, um, it had the Cardinals. So it had some decent pitching, um, and hitting parks. And so I think it's an upgrade all around for Grandal. I'm really excited to own him. He's a guy who, if I miss out on JT rail Muto, um, as kind of a high-end catcher, he's definitely my number. Well, he's he's my number two, probably uh, very close with Gary Sanchez. Though, how about you? I, I just talked for a very long time. Uh, how, no, that's all, all good. No, I kind of talked about it before I gave it over to you, but he did play 153 games last year because he played first base a lot for the Brewers as well. So that's one thing that we talked about during the catcher's preview of how much I I, I like him for is because he gets all those extra bats without having the wear and tear on his knees. So that that's a big plus there. You know, they did extend Jose Abreu, so he'll be around still, but throwing him in a DH is great. It does take a little hit on um, on their young prospect. Um, why Zach am Collins. I blanking all of a sudden? Zach Collins, who they have projected to be the designated hitter right now. I was kind of hoping Collins would share time with James McCann. They also have James McCann, who they're going to have to find a place for, but uh, – Zach Collins is a fun power bat that might get uh, lose some at bats along this route, but we'll have to wait and see there. But Grandal, I, I love it. I absolutely love the location for him, and uh, should be a lot of fun to see how that works. And this this White Sox team, just like the Reds, they're not done either because they're rumored on Wheeler and a couple other guys too. So they might be a lot closer than we think with the Indians giving up basically, and uh, the Tigers being the Tigers, Royals being the Royals, so on and so forth. Um, let's go to the Padres. They acquired Jerks from Profar. From the Oakland Athletics, second straight off season where Profar is on the move. And um, it seemed like a massively disappointing year from Profar because he only hit 218, but he hit 20 homers and stole nine bags, almost identical to the year before. His counting stats, he didn't score as many runs because he wasn't on base. But he had 218 Babbitt to go with a 218 batting average. That was pretty wild from Jerks and Profar. Uh, he's only 26 years old. He fills a hole at second base. 
He's projected to hit eighth in the order, which is not ideal for fantasy. I'm not really in on Jerickson Profar. I love the ability of him to run and hit for power, but it's it's not looking pretty for him right now. Do you have any interest in Jerickson Profar with the San Diego Padres? Uh, not really um, for Profar. Uh, you know, I, I agree with your analysis. I think, you know, there's some power-speed combo there, which is beneficial. If he does hit eighth, that's a big hit to his stolen base opportunities. I mean, he's not a massive speed guy. He's a barely double digit speed guy, but every, every stolen base uh, definitely helps right now. Um, but if he's batting eighth, that's going to be a real hit to his value. Defensively, we know he's, that he's not very good. Um, at least his arm, uh, he has a trouble getting the ball to first base uh, accurately. So that could be an issue that uh, raises its head, especially on a new team with a little bit, maybe uh, more, uh, more some some added pressure or competition for playing time. Although he did have that with with the A's, but the one thing that I'll say that interests me about Profar, he did have, um, you know, he did towards the end of last year put together a pretty solid little run there, and some of the underlying metrics supported it: increase in hard hit rate, uh, improvement in his in his in his batting eye, <coughs> and he's always been a good contact guy, and so. You know, there's definitely some interest. The Padres were a busy bunch this uh, last few weeks. They made a trade with the Milwaukee Brewers, a four-man trade. The Padres received Trent Grisham and Zach Davies, and the the Brewers re- received Eric Lauer and H- 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 Luis Urias. I always want to call him Julio, <laughs> wrong Urias. Luis Urias. It was quite the uh, surprise move for me, but uh, it adds another outfielder to San Diego, which doesn't really get me too excited in that respect. Because uh, I do like Grisham. I think there's a, there's a nice little upside there. But uh, crowded outfield, not sure how that's going to work. But I do love the move for Milwaukee. As, as Milwaukee keeps getting rid of players, it's real interesting to see them acquire uh, Urias, who they have projected to play at shortstop by Hira, play second base. Uh, the power that Urias has shown in the minors, I'm a big fan of. We haven't seen it completely translate to the pros yet, but still, he's going to be 23 in June. I think the upside's tremendous with what he's doing there. Uh, the batting average, you know, 270 to 300 in the minors type guy, hitting in Milwaukee out of the NLS. I think there's a lot, of, lot to like about Urias. Get him late in drafts in a, as a middle infield option if you need him. Uh, so there's a lot to like there. Trent Grisham, I get the appeal. I see the upside that there's a little power and some speed. I just don't know what San Diego's plans are there. So. That's where I'm kind of at on that deal. What are your thoughts on that that four way trade? Yeah, let's see if I can talk here. Um, I, <clears throat> yeah, it was um, it was interesting for sure. Uh, Grisham and Urias have pretty similar profiles, just in terms of decent plate discipline, solid contact, but some b- batted ball quality issues. And you know, both of them, Urias and Grisham, like when you look at the Statcast data, the definite weakness is the quality of the batted balls. And so I think that's what they're kind of similar guys, but I I don't quite understand what the Padres are doing just because as you mentioned, they have that glut of outfielders. And so, you know, is Grisham going to be a guy that's on, that's in the strong side of a platoon? What does this mean for Will Myers, which is my larger concern because <laughs> I just want uh, Will Myers to get access to playing time. Uh, but Urias, you obviously have to love the upgrade in ballpark for him. He does have a little bit of power, which he showed in AAA uh, with the MLB ball. So, it, it, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether that can translate. He obviously has the 
the hit tool um, that's been well known for a number of years now by prospect folks. I do think that Zach Davies is kind of interesting. There's nothing super interesting about it other than the fact that he somehow maintains really low ERAs on a consistent basis. And now he's moving to a better park uh, for doing that with the Padres. So I think in some deeper leagues is kind of a late round flyer, just kind of a guy who doesn't necessarily eat innings, but uh, can get you decent ratios and potentially some wins and solid matchups. Uh, he could be intriguing in some deeper leagues. Lauer doesn't interest me that much. doesn't really have any, any dominant pitches. Not that Davies does, but he gets hit, hit around a little bit. And obviously it's a huge downgrade for him uh, in terms of ballpark. So all in all, it seems like a fairly uh, fair trade. Uh, Grisham is, is a solid player. And I really like the, the elite plate discipline that he combines with a high contact rate. But again, can he make that quality of contact is going to be the key, I think. Yeah, no doubt about it there. Padres stayed active. They went and got uh, one of the top relievers in the market. And I am not misquoting that when I say that. Drew Pomeranz, uh, four-year, $34 million. Pomeranz was outstanding once the Giants fleeced the Brewers for Mauricio Dubon. He went to the bullpen and was just great for the Brew Crew. Um, we saw it in the postseason. We saw it in the regular season when he just utilized the, the fastball and increased the velocity there with the Brew Crew. Um, and, and he was lights out really sneaky good for uh, the Brewers, and it was a big reason they got to the postseason. I was kind of thinking the Brewers should have kept him, but the Brewers appeared to be getting rid of everybody under the sun. But while he was with the Brewers, 2390 ERA, 214 XFIP, struck out 45 guys in 26 innings. Yes, this is Drew Pomeranz, folks. So he got paid. Uh, the relieving market wasn't deep this year. He's going to be an interesting option there, especially if they end up trading Kirby Yates, which they could do. Pomeranz could slide in there. It also just gives that Padres bullpen so much depth. So there is going to be fantasy relevance with Pomeranz, but not sure. It depends on your league, obviously. But it's a very intriguing move. What's your thoughts on Pomeranz in San Diego? Yeah, I definitely think um... – you know, it's an interesting signing. It's nice. I mean, it's just, you know, the whole Brewers thing. And then earlier today on Twitter, there was this thing about how the Indians are going to have to trade Lindor because they can't afford him in the current state of baseball. And to me, it's just unbelievable, right? You have these, the Kansas City Royals sold for a billion dollars. The Indians are, are a $1.2 billion franchise. That's what they're valued at. And you have them, you know, uh, the Brewers are just bleeding guys, you know, um, and who knows who they're going to sign. Maybe they'll make a big signing. Maybe they won't. Uh, but then you got, you know, things like that happening. So that's just that I think is just something that's just a little bit sad, I think, from the league overall. Not that we didn't know that it was already happening, but uh, it just shows that there's going to be a bigger and bigger gap between those teams that are really putting resources in and, and, and uh, tip of the hat to the Padres for doing that. I think uh, Pomerantz was dominant towards the end of last year. Uh, we'll get into it when we talk more about relievers. My only question is um, about uh, the, uh, you know, just the variance, right? Is like relievers are volatile commodities and um, not like, not like they're actual commodities, like they're human beings, but um, they're just <laughs> volatile given the small sample size. I know after talking about like, you know, the state of the financial affairs, I felt uh, terrible calling Pomerantz a <laughs> commodity there. Uh uh, he's got humanity, damn it. He has um, feelings. He has feelings and, and humanity. <laughs> so the I think it's I think it's super interesting uh, for Pomerantz. Like 
I mean, he was dominant towards the end of the second half of the season. So if he can carry that forward, what I thought was interesting is that he was dominant with his fastball. So he threw his fastball on 75.3% of his pitches over his last 10 games last year. And the curve was only 20 plus percent. And so it'll be interesting to see whether he carries on uh, doing what he's doing. If he can, obviously it's going to be a huge score for the Padres who already have a pretty loaded bullpen and a bunch of minor league starting pitchers and relief pitchers who can kind of jump in. So a really good move for them. It'll be uh, really interesting to see if they can get, you know, that frontline starter, either Garrett Cole or Steven Strasburg to, um, you know, really be uh, solidify that rotation a little bit because their bullpen looks good. They're adding some offensive pieces. So um, yeah, it should be, it should be pretty interesting to see what he does and hopefully he can keep it going because he was one of the most dominant relievers in the game uh, for a large stretch of the season last year. Yeah. Very, very surprising stuff. And it's good to see the Padres making moves. Like you mentioned, the Indians won't do anything, which is ridiculous, but the Padres have been active last season. Machado, making moves now, making trades. Uh, I'd love to see it. Preller's got something brewing down there in San Diego, and the Giants are screwed. So uh, that would be fun. <laughs> Give uh, the Giants three years for all those amazing hitting prospects. To Oh, yeah, to the, the hitting, prospects, hitting prospects are great. they got to figure out pitching, and getting rid of Kevin Pillar made me just sick to my stomach. But that's a whole other podcast in itself. Um, the Atlanta Braves made a couple moves. We mentioned Will Smith either early in the show or on the preview podcast for those that signed up on the – the free 99 deal. Uh, we were talking Will Smith as well. He signs with the Braves three years, 39 million. And it kind of surprised me. And I know it surprised you because you liked Mark Lance. I think you took him either in the mock draft or in your DC right before the deal happened. I think it was a mock draft. I took and, him everywhere, Bubba. I took yeah, him I everywhere. And on the bright side, reports out of Atlanta say it's still Melanson's job. Me personally, I find that hard to believe when you pay Will Smith three years, 39 million. Maybe they do a committee, a righty-lefty thing. I think it's Will Smith's job to lose. It's it's a weird deal. I actually wrote about these two guys for the Fantasy Black Book, and it's one of those things where you want a piece of either or because they're either going to both get saves, saves and holds, the ratios. There's a lot of angles here with Smith and Melanson. It's a great landing spot for Smith on a really, really good team. Saves will be a plenty. Uh, I don't need to go too much farther in this. What do you got on Will Smith and your thoughts on that whole mess in Atlanta now? Well, I think Mark Melanson gets the job, keeps the job, never relinquishes the job, and we never hear from Will Smith again. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah, simple. Short, sweet, uh, um, simple. I, I tend to um, – I mean, I am totally biased here because I was targeting Melanson in a lot of places, but I do think that they will give Melanson the job. You know, the analysis that I kind of buy into, which I've heard a number of people say, is that Smith will be the high leverage guy, right? They've already signed him to the big contract. Melanson's also on a big contract, $16 million, I think, this year, or $14 million, something like that. Who knows yeah, why they picked him up. It's a lot of Giants. money. Yeah. yeah. That was a very nice favor of them to do to the Giants. Um, but I think Smith will be that kind of high-leverage guy um, who comes in. And so it may be that he collects some saves and Melanson misses out on some, and then he works the eighth sometimes. But I do think that they'll probably keep Melanson in that role, at least temporarily. And I think if you're a Melanson owner, like I am in a lot of places, you're just hoping that he can start off the season hot um, so that he can hold on to the job for a little bit or even the full season. But I definitely think Will Smith is the better pitcher. I think that's pretty clear uh, just by the skills. And if you look at him, he's been remarkably con consistent. Yes. Um, you know, since his rookie year, the, the highest ERA he had was a 3-7. 
Um, his whip is normally in the one, two to under one range. Like he's just an all around solid pitcher. It's nice to see that he is getting kind of the recognition that he deserves for that consistency with the contract that he signed. Um, I'm actually not like, I think the Braves bullpen is solid, but I also think it's, um, you know, I like Will Smith a lot. I don't think Melanson's that great again like the only reason why i was buying into him as closer is because he seemed to have the role at least from day one and the and the price wasn't high and as we talk more about relief pitchers i'll get into why that's the type of guy that i want to be targeting this year but you know chris martin was a nobody before last year and so will he be able to repeat he even struggled with the braves towards the uh second part of last season obviously luke jackson was really good last year but he really faded um, down the stretch, not just in terms of like outcomes, but also in terms of skills. And so they obviously have the makings of a decent bullpen, but I hesitate to say that they're going to be uh, a dominant bullpen with the guys that they've got in there right now. I don't think Shane Green's very good either. No, he's so, garbage. Again, I think like there's a lot of names. There's a lot of money being put in that bullpen. I don't necessarily know if it's going to translate or not, but Will Smith is the best arm in that bullpen. And I, I'm just hoping that Melanson is able to hold on to some saves because I'm not going to own Will Smith a lot of places because he's already going super high in drafts, like ahead of a lot of guys who are actual closers. And so I will probably not own many shares of him heading into this year. Yeah, it's a tough one. You don't want to pay for a potential committee or whatever situation. You don't want to pay that high price. And uh, Will Smith will cost that for you. So uh, really a tough one for you there. We'll stick in Atlanta. Travis Dayarnod signs a two-year $16 million deal to catch for the Braves. I really don't care about Travis Darnold from a fantasy standpoint. I know some people do. He had 16 homers last year between three teams. He had one the year before, 16 the year before that. Doesn't really do it for me. I know Jason Collette talks about a hitting change he made in Tampa Bay. Maybe that sticks. You still have Tyler Flowers there. I was hoping Alex Jackson, the rookie, would get more time because he showed so much power in AAA. That's pretty much going to be non-existent now. But uh, with they are not, and just Atlanta in general, their philosophy is they love to do the committee. We saw with Suzuki and Flowers. It might not be a complete 50-50, but I'm thinking maybe 60% of the games Travis gets and then the 40% of Flowers, I think 65 would be your best-case scenario. He's not going to be an everyday guy, and that's the big deterrent for me. I know that's a lot of catchers these days. We talked about it, but he's, he's going to be lucky to get 100 games. I think at the position, what's your take on Darnod to uh, Atlanta? Yeah. I mean, um, I agree with your take that, you know, it limits his value because of the, the, the platoon that the Braves like to employ. Like a lot of Yarno's value last year came because he was playing first base, you know, in addition to catching and getting some time at DH, which he obviously won't be able to do. So um, I'm not that interested in him from a catcher perspective. Like, He's going to have 80 games played if he stays healthy, which is something he hasn't been able to do in the past. Then that, that, you know, that'll be decent as a catcher too, but I don't see him as a catcher one right now, although I haven't done the type of deep dive that you have yet on catcher. So maybe I will change my mind once I uh, dive into the dregs that is, uh, <laughs> that is catcher. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, so I'm not super interested. There is some interesting things going on in the profile. You know, over his last 40 games, the power definitely improved. The ground ball rate went down a little bit as well. So if he can keep that up, I think that's really good. But um, not a huge fan of D'Arno heading into next. 
Yeah, me neither. Let's go to Texas. The Rangers, three-year, $30 million deal to Kyle Gibson. For some reason, I've always had a soft spot for Kyle Gibson. Don't know why. I might be a masochist or something because he's really Definitely not overly nasty. great. For sure. But he's good. Like he, ah. his last two years, his last two years, X FIPS three nine one three eight zero. He's almost a K per nine. Uh, his slider is outstanding. I saw a couple of tweets from Eno Saris and Rob Silver breaking down his slider and how it compares to other pitchers. Uh, he's not elite by any means. He's going to Texas with the new uh, climate controlled ballpark, which will be a lot better than pitching in Arlington. So that that notion needs to get thrown out. Uh, we saw the change they did with Lynn and Minor. I'm not saying he's going to be great, but I think you might be able to get a little bit of later round value in a deep league on a guy like Kyle Gibson. Uh, based on what I just heard there, I made you sick. Uh, what's your thoughts on uh, Kyle you, Gibson? You didn't make me sick, Baba. Let me tell you, I bet our listeners didn't uh, know they were getting sniffles and coughs along with the podcast today. Congratulations, everybody. You all go home winners tonight or today or this afternoon whenever you're listening to the podcast. Um my uh, general um, thoughts about Gibson, I think Gibson is who Gibson is. Um, he's been kind of the same pitcher for the last uh, three years or so. I mean, the swinging strike rate has increased. The K-minus walk has gotten a little bit better. He's got some dominant offerings, that's for sure. But um, the fastball just isn't, it's just not good enough. Like, he doesn't have the hard stuff that him that can get him through um, and it's the only pitch, those are the only pitches that he can throw for strikes. Like he can't throw the other pitches over the plate for strikes. And so for that reason, you know, he's, he gets behind a lot of counts. His walk rate has been fairly high. Um, recently it wasn't too bad last year. I think it was 7.9%. Previously he struggled with that walks, gives up a lot of hits, gives up a lot of runners, um, and gives up a ton of home runs as well. And so <clears throat> for that reason, um, you know, he's also going to the AOS where he's going to have to face the Astros and the A's more often. Um, and so for that reason, like, I think Gibson kind of is who he is. I wouldn't expect him to take any massive steps forward. He's also like older than you think. He's 32. Um, not that that means that it's the end for him, but with all the wonderful things that he's been able to do, right, in terms of his repertoire and things like that, his highest K rate is 22.7% from last year, which is actually below league average. So, you know, uh, as, as a guy who has owned Gibson uh, for the last couple of years and really hoped that he was going to take that next step, I'm just not sure that it's going to come. But he certainly has a really nice repertoire to bet on, and he's not a terrible guy to take, like, after pick 300 and hope that he hits. Yep, just a freebie that if, you don't, if it doesn't work out, you can drop him in no concern at all. Uh, last piece of news. This isn't a major one at all. I just wanted to bring it up. Stephen Vogt goes to the Diamondbacks. He was very good as a backup catcher for the Giants, like 10 home runs at 263. Very good on and off the field. I wanted to mention him going to Arizona because it'll basically be Carson Kelly's backup, and Kelly's a guy that's popular with a lot of people, and rightfully so. There's a lot to like there with the kid. But uh, I'm wondering if you're concerned about uh, – I'm not saying he's going to eat into his playing time because Kelly's going to be the number one. We saw Alex Avila played a handful of games. He's basically going to take the Alex Avila role. Are you worried about that happening to like take any extra oomph away from Carson Kelly? Um, not not really. Um, I mean, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're bringing him up because he was on the Giants last year, Bubba. Let's be honest. 
No, he was actually no, I'm, decent. I'm just, that was I'm, just crap. I'm, I'm, I'm just teasing you. Yeah, he he had a he had a great year last year. Um, you know, he played really well down the stretch. Uh, his projection isn't bad for like a very deep catcher at 300. You know, 300 plate appearances, 245, 11 home runs, 34 runs, 38 RBI. His hard hit rate shot through the roof by about nine percent uh, last year. He hit a lot fewer ground balls. Those are both really good trends, but his contact rate also fell by over 8%, 8.5%. So, you know, it looks like he was kind of giving up on the con- high contact approach and going to hit the ball harder, and it worked out decently well. So I think there's a lot worse offensive catchers to target. I'm just not sure how fantasy relevant he'll be given given the fact that Kelly is uh, is the catcher, and I think vote is pretty bad from a defensive perspective. And so... Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's one thing to consider as well. I think last year they had who their backup catcher was like a pretty Alex Avila. Oh, it was Alex Avila. Okay. never mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he could be, he could be decent and there's always injuries at catcher. So he could be, could be, um, could be relevant. All right. Let's move to our recap of the relief pitchers. This should be a fun one because uh, yeah, relief pitchers are relief pitchers and they're so much fun and so consistent and great stuff. But Overall, Toby, what was your thoughts on the position uh, after the end of the 2019 season? Yeah, you know, um, heading into the 2019 season, I'm always somebody who waits on on saves. It's not like a hard and fast rule, but you'll generally not find me uh, going after a closer before pick 100. Um, again, not like a hard and fast rule, but it's just something that, um, you know, I like to target starting pitching early on. And so when I do that, it kind of forces me to target some bats um, a little bit heavier in the subsequent rounds. I also think that there's just a ton of, we were talking before the show, um, you know, for this subscribers only behind the podcast uh, episode that you'll get um, just that there's so much variance in, in uh, relief pitcher performance, not just closers, but you know, I think closers are volatile because number one, you have to have the closer job in order to, you know, have value um, in a lot of ways. Like you can be a guy like Nick Anderson who has great ratios and, you know, and and that can give you an asset. But a lot of times those guys, you know, aren't necessarily known before the the season started, you know, and and because there is such volatility, you're dealing with a small sample size. Like we talked about Edwin Diaz, who we'll talk about a little bit later, but, you know, he pitches 65 innings a year, which is the equivalent of seven, like nine inning games. Right. So like, you know, that's like not the equivalent of nine starts. And we've seen how even the best starting pitcher can struggle over, you know, a third of the season. Right. And that's essentially what we're looking about at. And so even the most dominant player can run into some bad luck, like a 23% home run to fly ball. Right. And their season goes to absolute crap. And they also need to be able to hold on to the closer role in order to maintain value. And so because of that volatility, I'm not really interested in investing high up in the draft. What I'm looking for is a guy who has a job and seems to have a decent hang on it. Right. You know, so maybe they've been successful in the past and they have the same manager, um, you know, uh, something of that nature, a guy, and then a guy who's hopefully on a relatively good team. And then, you know, just not like the Marlins, right? Like I'll go after Ryan Stanek really late uh, in a, in a yeah. draft champions league because maybe he'll get some saves on the Marlins, although they could be better given some of the, the moves that they've made. Um, 
And then uh, I'm going for that. And then hopefully a guy with some pretty decent skills. So who's actually shown the ability to um, to strike guys out, hopefully not walk that many guys, but in a closer role, that's not as important. Generally speaking, like limiting home runs and limiting contact would be preferable. But guys who have done that, and then I'm also going to be looking at guys who have access to the closer role and maybe are coming off of a down year. So a guy like Edwin Diaz, who was going around like pick 40, 50 last year, pretty much put up similar skills to what he had the year before, um, but all of a sudden is around pick like 130 to 150. A uh, guy like uh, Jose Leclerc, who seems to have a pretty strong hold on the job, um, really struggled last year, but the underlying numbers don't really point to that being the case. So looking for a guy who I may be able to get some positive regression um, on them, although we know season to season, you just never know what you're going to get. So that's what I'm kind of looking at, and I don't want to pay for that. So I'll take some relievers later on who look to have a solid solid shot and hope that it works out and then just keep on working the wire and try to add those high-skilled relievers and hope that some of them fall into jobs as well. What about you? What were your thoughts um, kind of heading out of this past season and, 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 and kind of your approach? Yeah, it's kind of – my approach has always been, and I brought it up to debate with guys before last season, it's do you just pay the price and get two elite closers that you know has the job – and has the opportunity to go big for you, or do you just play the waiver wire game, or do you take guys that, like you're talking about, you wait, and then you play the waiver wire, and the, the reason I ask that question, and I think it's the right way to do it, your your way of going about it makes the most sense, because, you know, last year, Diaz and Trinan were going high, we saw how that turned out, and you got could have got guys like Kirby Yates or others later, and the only reason why I get kind of frustrated with that aspect of it is because saves all are always available on the waiver wire. Uh, there was over 50 players that had at least five saves last year. So you can play that game all year long and pick up because, you know, playing in the NFBC, five saves goes a long way late in the year. Like like every little bit counts. So you can play that game all over the place. And it just how do you want to do that? Because in a year like last year where we saw all the prospects come up and you spend all your money there. Well, if you need saves, you might not have any money anymore. Or if you spent money on saves early, you can't get the prospects. It's, it's a weird dynamic to see how it comes out. I know it's kind of we don't usually see prospect palooza and a lot of big-time bats all the time like that, so you usually have more money to play the game. But it's kind of a philosophy that you have to think, at least think about going into it. I guess I like to try to get not one of the big dogs, uh, unless the league dictates that, but I try to get one of like the, the maybe five through ten guys after pick like 120, grab one of them, maybe two, depending on draft flow. Get one of them, then I'll gamble on like two other guys later. So I have one kind of pretty stable guy and then two more guys that still have the job, like you said, but not running out to get them because just the overall landscape of the relief pitcher, as you were talking about, is a just just mess, an absolute mess. It's ever-changing between uh, all the trades we're seeing with relievers these days. There were a lot of teams with two, three, four closers at different times last year. Uh, injuries, like, um, like I said, the trades. It was a wild, wild west, and – you know, last year, Kirby Yates was the only guy over 40 saves. The year before that, we had three. The year prior to that, we had three plus three guys at 39. And the year prior to that, we had six guys over 40. So it was a massive decrease in the overall volume of saves this past year. And it makes you kind of wonder how you want to approach it. Do you want three closers? We can talk about this at the end when we recap. But do you want to go with three closers instead of two? Or does it make you want to go and get the guys that consistently put up 30-plus saves time and time again? It's a, it's a really interesting philosophy that one has to make going into a draft, but I'm pretty sure I'll be with you 
on the waiting game because I can make a case for 15 or so guys that I don't mind going to war with come opening day. All right, let's talk about some that we got right and then some we got wrong. Who was the first reliever you got right last season? Um, the first one was Kirby Yates. Uh, <clears throat> so the consensus rankings on Yates uh, at Fantasy Pros was at him number 10 heading into this year. I had him at number seven, and he finished at number two. Uh, obviously, he was dominant heading into the year. Um, what I really loved is he has that filthy split-finger fastball, which is just an absolutely uh, dominant pitch. He mu- checked all the boxes in terms of closer role. I know there were some concerns that he might get traded by the Padres, but I think that that actually a lot of times affects the guy's price and ends up giving you a little bit of a discount. I think Will Smith is a good example of that from this past year that worked out really well. And I think a lot of times also what I think I see happening in fab is that early on in the year, you have these really high bids for the closers when closers roles open up and then towards the middle and end of the year, obviously there's less of the year left. Um, People have less fab. And so it's a little bit cheaper to speculate on saves. And there also seems to be a little bit more turnover um, again, I haven't done the analysis on that, so that's just kind of my sense of things. Um, but, uh, you know, for that reason, like, um, again, like waiting is not a terrible option. But with Yates, he, he just had that dominant splitter, and that's what I'm also looking for is like a dominant pitch like that uh, that can get him the strikeouts that he needs to be successful in the closer's role. I obviously didn't uh, think he'd pitch as well as he did, but um, liked him a lot. So was excited for that. Unfortunately, you know, he got pushed up towards the end of the draft, so I only had him in a couple of places, but um, still uh, one that I got right uh, for this year. How about you? Yeah, Who's your first? It's definitely a good one. And right now, if you want Kirby Yates, he's going 89th already in FEC draft. So that price is stocked up there. My first would be Josh Hader. This is a guy I drafted in Barf pretty early. I like relievers. I guess one thing I left out is if I'm going to gamble on relievers or whatever, I want guys with high strikeout upside. Um, that's why guys like Shane Green and some others were never on my list ever. Like, I don't want pitch to contact closers. I want guys that can blow it past people. That's what Josh Hader can do. Now, this year, this past year, he's pulled, still put up great numbers. His strikeout rates are crazy, but he improved his his saves from twelve to thirty seven because it wasn't a committee anymore. It was his gig, and it and he dominated it. The one concern I have is towards the end of the season he started dominating a little less. I don't know if the wear and tear finally got to him from the heavy workload the year before, what it was. The overall numbers still look good, but for those that remember towards the end, it got a little dicey. And if you go look at his uh, quality of contact, his barrel rate's up, his hard hit's up. All those stats you don't want to see up are up. So just keep that in mind. He might be getting traded. He's like rumored in trades because the Brewers are just doing God knows what over there right now. I can't figure it out. But when it comes down to it, I was very, very high on Josh Hader higher than others because people didn't believe he'd get the main saves chances. They thought he was still in the committee. He took the role. He struck out more than he's ever struck out uh, in a season. And uh, I'm a big Josh Hader fan. If if we find out things are okay, I'll still be a, a fan of his. Like, he's my third reliever off the board going into this season for me. Many will have him number one. He's going um, about pick 74, yeah, 73 right now in NFBCs. Uh, I'm just, I'm a little concerned of what I saw towards the end of the season but maybe the offseason will do him right because the stuff is still filthy, and uh, I think he's a very, very talented big lefty. Who's your number two? My number uh, two is the previously mentioned Will Smith. 
Uh, consensus number 19, I had him at number 15. He finished number seven. In terms of closers, I own him in a ton of different places, um, including a main event and TGFBI. He was super useful. He's a great relief pitcher, super consistent. I'm sure he'll do uh, really well um, with the Braves uh, in that high leverage role with Mark Melanson getting all the saves. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, my number two will be Ken Giles of the Toronto Blue Jays. It was a weird year for Ken because he battled some injuries and everything. But when he was on the mound, this dude was filthy, absolutely filthy. Finished with a 187 ERA, 273 XFIP. I can live with that. 23 saves. He's had 23 or more saves in three straight seasons. His strikeout rate uh, went up to almost 40% this year. And his walk rate increased to 8%, which was not ideal. But his stuff was great. We look at his stat cast metrics, um, you know, fastball velo in the 95th percentile, K percentage, 99th percentile percentile x woba 98th x slug 95th x batting average 96 this dude was absolutely filthy for the toronto blue jays now there's rumors of him getting traded too that could ruin him for the upcoming season but for now he was a four seam and a slider combo guy and was just outstanding what he was doing on the bump and um i, I was very very high on him he was one of my if i wasn't taking one of the elite elite options i wanted to get me some ken giles in the mid rounds i was very very happy with him and if you look at uh, NFBC early on here, he's going about to 143. A couple picks. Uh, it's weird. There's like a run that, that goes in NFBC right now. 139, Kenley Jansen. 140, Will Smith. 141, Craig Kimbrell. 142, Edwin Diaz. 143, Ken Giles. So it's like everyone get, feels the pressure about that point in the draft. But uh, I'm a big Ken Giles fan going into this year. And the, the, the Blue Jays should be even more improved as they get another year older with all those youngsters. There's rumors of them getting a couple nice bats possibly. Could be an interesting team. So that's my number two. Who's your three? Well, he's so hot right now. Uh, Hansel Robles <laughs> is my number uh, my number three. I could not go without Hansel. He wasn't a guy before the season I was targeting by any stretch of the imagination. But when the um, when uh, Cody Allen struggled mightily as the Angels closer, uh, I was trumpeting the get uh, Hansel Robles. Um uh, I was trumpeting the, I don't know what you trumpet, but I was trumpeting that uh, to get him. Trumpeted so, the trumpet. So I got him in a lot of places. The reason for that was pretty simple. Uh, the other guy he was going against was uh, uh, was uh, Buttry, uh, who a lot of people liked a lot more. If you watched really closely, uh, Robles was pitching in the eighth inning uh, on a fairly consistent basis. Like there was definitely some switching around of roles. But I think uh, something that I always think about is is cost. And with Robles, with Buttry being a younger guy, um, who's probably going to be the te- with the team with a longer period of time, like I thought they might go with uh, Robles, who's more of a veteran, probably doesn't have as long of a tenure and won't be hurt um, in arbitration with the saves. And then I think um, finally, like his cost was a lot lower. I mean, Buttry was going for a lot more, right? Like yeah. he was going for, I think, over $100 like on FAB. And Robles, I got him for under 10 bucks, I think, in every place where I picked him up. And in those types of instances, like, you know, I'm always going to go for the guy. If there's question marks, I'm always going to go. And there's relatively similar skills. I'm always going to go for the guy who's going to be cheaper because you're paying a hefty cost right there um, for what is pretty much a guess. And there's there doesn't seem to be that much differentiating the two pitchers. And just so, um, so I'm going to go with that instance. And then, and Hansel was kind of my Brad Boxberger from this past year, although Robles yes. was good and Boxberger wasn't. 
but just, you know, he was the guy I loved to gif. He was, he was everything for me. He was my, uh, he was my everything for the full season. And I'm just super appreciative of him. And this is what's amazing to me. We were talking about this beforehand. I had no freaking idea how good he was down the stretch yep. over his last 10 games. He had a swinging strike rate over 18%. His O swing jumped up to 40%. His in zone contact rate was 10% below league average. Like he was absolutely dominant. Like I knew he was good. Like I knew he was pitching well and not giving up many hits. You know, I think he, he, I think he threw like a perfect nine innings without giving up any uh, walks or hits or something like that, or at least a no hit or whatever it was. He was absolutely dominant. I didn't realize that the skills were there too. And he started throwing his changeup, which has about a 20% swinging strike rate on it. He started throwing that pitch 51% of the time over that period of time. And he was absolutely dominant. So I actually wasn't in on Robles heading into this year. I was like, ah, you know, it was fun while it lasted. Um, but I don't want to pay for a guy who I don't actually think is that good. But it turns out that Hansel Robles actually was pretty damn good. And so the only concern I have slightly with him is the fact that he has a new manager with Joe Madden. So if he struggles at the beginning, uh, you know, who knows who Madden's guy is. But uh, he certainly earned... Uh, that absolute, um, that dominance uh, down the stretch. And he helped a lot of people um, uh, down the stretch. And and for that, he he is he is the hot man. He is so hot right now, Hansel Robles. Who is your, so who is your number three? So my, mine is Liam Hendricks. And it's not because I liked him going into the season because if someone said they liked him going into the season, well, they were full of it. But um, it was more that I jumped on him very aggressively when China was struggling and I owned him in a handful of places, and he helped me out a ton down the stretch because he racked up 25 saves to finish up the season. And one thing with Hendricks is we saw in, in years previous, the strikeout stuff was there. Uh, he struck out 37% this past year, but, you know, an 18 between AAA and the bigs, he had like a 30 to 35% K rate, now 28, 26. We knew the stuff was there, but it improved this year because he started using his slider a ton more, and he started bouncing his curveball to get guys to chase at it. It was very, very effective and very, very impressive. Um, all of his metrics pretty much jump off the page. The hard hit rate isn't ideal. It's almost 40%. And his barrel rate's only 6%, which isn't isn't too bad. Like his ex-woba and everything, his quality of contact, which is one thing I, I like to see, it was very, very low. And in pitching an Oco Coliseum is always going to help the pitcher out in that situation. It's going to be hard for me to buy back in and jump on a guy like Liam Hendricks who came out of nowhere at his age 30 season to save 25 games, but he's one of those guys that the price is right on, on there. Right now, he's going about pick 123 in NFB, or 128, so he's going ahead of all those other guys we just mentioned, Will Smith, Kimbrell, Diaz, Giles, all of them. It's going to be hard for me to take him over that group, but he's going to be there, very quality arm. I see him kind of maybe dropping a bit as the, the offseason goes on. But uh, very, very impressive what he pulled off last year. I'm glad I jumped on him aggressively. Kind of how you jumped on Robles, I jumped on Hendricks, and it was a very lucrative situation. All right, let's talk about three we got wrong. Let's start with your first one, Toby. Um, my first one is Jose Leclerc. Um, he was consensus number 13 uh, closer. I had him as my number six closer, and he finished God knows what he finished at, Bubba, to be honest with you. He wasn't on the first couple pages, so... I just uh, I just gave up. The one thing I'll say about Leclerc, and I think this is absolutely fascinating here, is Leclerc's expected WOBA was 267, 
last year with a 306 WOBA. So he was incredibly unlucky on contact. He actually had one of the lowest barrel rates uh, of any pitcher who qualified on uh, the, the StatCast leaderboard. And he actually had the same expected WOBA pretty much um, as Hansel Robles, as Will Smith, um, as Edwin Diaz. Like all those guys had the same expected WOBA. It was just a matter of who got unlucky with uh, with with uh, contact. And so uh, Leclerc is a guy, he's not without warts. He The, the high walk rate was the death of him uh, earlier on in the season. He just couldn't uh, hit the zone. But um, he started to improve that. His uh, first pitch strike weight was much higher towards the end of last year. He started to strike out more guys, walk fewer guys, got that, got that walk rate down to a manageable 11.9% over his last uh, 10 games of the season. So hopefully he figured something out. But a guy who just has a couple really solid pitches, his fastball is really good. Um, and so he's a guy that I'm going to be hardcore in on uh, heading into next year. I missed on him this year. Let's just hope it's not two years in a row. How about you? Who was the first one that you missed on? Mine was Blake Trinan. I was a big fan of Blake Trinan. Maybe that's why I own Liam, Liam Hendricks everywhere because I saw it firsthand every night looking at my uh, my pages. But uh, I really liked what I saw with him after a few years of being a really good closer for the A's, and it didn't pan out, obviously. Uh, he's just getting hit all over the yard, tons of hard contact, tons of home runs. His, but the biggest thing is his control left. His walk rate ballooned up to almost 14% last year, which is just ridiculous, kind of Jose Leclerc-esque. In that sense, um, the stuff was still very good. You know, the velocities on his fastballs are still 96 and above. You're still getting um, over 25% swinging strike rates on his pitches. Um, there's a lot to like there with him. He just needs to work on that quality of contact because his slider had a 232 Woba, but he throws a cutter, a four-seamer, and a sinker, and they're all about 350 or above, which is not what you want to see there with the ex-Woba. So he needs to work on his pitch mix more and work on his – um, you know, location and uh, just stop walking freaking guys. And he might be okay again. And some team's going to get a deal with him since the A's non-tendered him. He's going to get cheap on somebody and he might sneak into some saves later on, but, or you're going to sit and watch and see how he develops. But the stuff is still there. Just curious to see if he figures it out, but I was definitely wrong on Blake Trinan. Who's your number two? Uh, my number two is Edwin Diaz. Uh, I had Diaz as the number one reliever, like a lot of other people um, heading into this last year, and he did not pitch super well. But again, it wasn't because the skills, you know, had some sort of massive deterioration. He had a 344 Woba with a 277 expected Woba, which just shows like the dude was super unlucky. A 258 uh, batting average with a 207 expected average, a 502 slug versus a 366 expected slug. You know, if you look at the biggest discrepancies between relievers, Diaz is going to be at the top of that uh, list. He was still incredibly, um, uh, like the skills were just incredible. He struck out 50, over 15 guys an inning, 39% K rate. He had the eighth highest K minus walk rate among all relievers in baseball at 30.3%. His swinging strike rate was close to 18%. He was just absolutely dominant from a skills perspective, but the batted ball quality was poor. I think, again, he's going to make a really good buy low candidate um, heading into this year. Um, and so he's a guy that, again, I'm going to like heading into next year, but I definitely missed on him this year, having him, him uh, number one overall. And he, uh, he definitely uh, he, he struggled. There's no other way to, to put it. 
Yeah, Diaz is a very fun bounce back candidate coming into this year. No doubt about it. Um, my number two is a guy I seen the draft year after year, and he did kind of half the things I wanted. He got 34 saves. He struck out 12 Ks per nine, which was good for a 32% strikeout rate, best of his career. But he also gave up more homers than he's ever given up. He had a 316 Babbitt, which did not end well for him because he usually leaves anywhere from 80 to 90% on base, a little less than that last year. I'm talking Rossiello Iglesias. It's kind of a mixed bag here. Um, and one thing that I didn't like, like you look at all his, his fastball velo, all that good stuff, it was phenomenal. He's He was very, very good. It's just he gave up uh, a lot of loud contact when it mattered most. That could have been thanks to uh, good old Great American Small Park. At the same time, it was just a weird deal with him. I guess the other part that I got wrong with him is the Reds manager, David Bell, decided for a part of the season, not the whole season, he got wise again towards the end, that he's going to use Rossiel in the important parts of the game, like, say, the seventh and eighth inning, which in baseball terms is the right move. When you're drafting fantasy teams, it is not the right move. So it was kind of a catch-22 there, and he probably missed out on another five to ten save chances throughout the year. I remember watching games all of a sudden, Mike Lorenzen's getting saves, and Lorenzen's very good. Like, he could be a Lorenzen is nasty. Yeah. Yeah, he could be a sneaky guy later on because the other part of the Glacius, he's always involved in trade rumors. So I love his stuff. Yeah, I think this last year was more of an outlier because similar to like Diaz and some of these guys, he should have better numbers. His peripherals look like he got a little bit of unlucky there, uh, but the strikeouts were there. His, he still got the saves you're looking for, 34 saves. I mentioned only one guy over 40. That was 41 with Kirby Gates. So 34, pretty damn good for Rossiel Glacius, but I was really, really high on him. And his ratios were um, gut-punching at times. So uh, that that's where I got it wrong on Iglesias. Who's your third? Uh, my third is probably my biggest miss of the season, um, and that is Corey Kniebel. Uh, consensus ranking for Kniebel was number 41. <laughs> it's okay. I'm, ar- him- I'm already hearing his name mentioned again this year. Don't worry I about know. it. No, that's because Brian Slack just can't – you just can't give it up. Uh, I had him as number 11 uh, in um, uh, in my rankings because I thought he was going to be the closer for the Brewers. And again, he finished awfully. And I think the thing with Kniebel is if you looked at the his second half of 2018 was just absolutely absurd. Like just the skill level was absurd. I think the K rate was over 40% and the walk rate was under 5%. Just absolutely um dominant uh, performance and I and I felt like hater they would want to keep him out of the closer role uh, to you know limit the cost in, in arbitration obviously you know we see we see now that the Brewers are thinking of trading him because of the of the future costs and because of the amount of uh, innings they've thrown him but uh, I was I, I had put Kniebel in a few places and I don't think I got an inning out of him uh, for the entire season I can't remember if he even threw an inning but um, it was, uh, it was an awful, terrible experience and, um, I will, um, I will, uh, I will probably not be back in on Knievel again. I think I've learned my lesson. I'm just going to stay far away. Josh Hader's good. Josh Hader's very good, but Hey, when they trade Hader, it could be Knievel time. So we will go. wait, we'll wait and see. There you go. Um, my final one, and this is one that I have rectified going into the season, so he'll probably have a horrible year. So just warning for everybody. But a role this Chapman. I thought the end was near for this man. I didn't think he could do it. Well, he did. He still struck out 36% of the batters he faced, 37 Ks, uh, 221 ERA, 286 XFIP. 
he was outstanding. And he's the model of consistency. He has 30 or more saves in all but one season since 2012. It's ridiculous what he does in a landscape that we keep talking about is always so volatile. It is not volatile when it comes to Aroldis Chapman. His off-the-field stuff is volatile, and that's disgusting. But on the mound, when we're talking fantasy baseball, he's as good as they get. And I'm not even going to go over his entire stat cast page, but the whole little red bar, red dots on the bars when he first log in, it's all in the upper 90 percentile. That's pretty much all you need to know. This dude's filthy. I wrote him off. I will not write him off next year, so buyer beware. But he was outstanding, and I don't – he keeps getting older, but he's going to be 32. He's just on a Yankees team that's going to give him a lot of save chances, and they they found a way to monitor him really well, give him a couple extra days here and there because of the depth of their bullpen, and he stayed fresh all year. And um, I didn't think they would do that. I think I was off him last year because they got Ottavino, they got Britton and all those pieces. Well, I saw how they used him this year, and Batances will be out of the way completely for good. I'm a big, big Aroldis Chapman fan going into this year. If you want to get a stable, stable reliever – I have confidence in Aroldis Chapman, which sounds disgusting to say in fantasy, but I do, and I got him wrong this past season. Yeah. Well, I think, Bubba, I'm going to be honest with you. I think you're being a little hard on yourself there because even though, um, uh, you know, he had a good season, um, he was not – I think he was like the number three or four closer off the board, and he ended up finishing as like by value, like as the number 12 closer or something like that. So I think you're being a little hard on yourself there. And, um, you know, even Rizal got those 34 saves. So you did a good job of uh, identifying closers. I'm going I'm to I'm listen to you instead of, uh, <laughs> instead of myself because I, I, yeah, as usual, don't listen to me. <laughs> don't listen to him, but he only wins all his leagues. So don't listen to him. He's, he's a waiver wire machine. Um, there you go. All right. That wraps up that portion of it. From the discussions we had on this podcast before the show, whatever else you've talked about relievers, and we'll do a, a reliever deep dive uh, later on. What's your kind of thoughts now going into 2020 uh, with this ever-evolving relief pitcher role? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that more than ever, I am committed to getting closers late. Um, just because I do think that there is a ton of variance. That's not to say, I mean, I think there's, there's going to be less variance with the upper echelon guys, right? The guys who have done it, who have proved it, proved it before. I do think that this year is a little bit of an outlier in the fact that Edwin Diaz and and um, and Blake Trinan were, um, you know, were kind of failures, were epic failures uh, at the cost that they were going. That isn't that isn't usual to happen with those upper echelon uh, of closers, but I just think that that the way that you win leagues is by finding value later on. And I think something that you is very, very hard to do is to get value from any closer that you draft towards the top end of the draft. And so I'm going to wait on guys. There are a lot of skilled relievers. There are a lot of guys who come out of nowhere, like Liam Hendricks, like Hansel Robles, who just kind of appear. And I think you need to work the waiver wire. That is if you have a waiver wire, right? If you're in like a draft champions mm-hmm. league, or a best ball where you don't get to go and do fab, then you obviously need to bump them up a little bit. But in traditional leagues where you have fab and waiver wires, I'm going to wait on closures and I'm going to go for those guys that are past that little bunch that you talked about, right? Like not the guys who are in the like maybe one in that 120-ish group. I'm going to go for the guys who are in that like 160 to 170 group, right? The Hansel Robles, the Alex Colomay, the Jose Leclerc, 
the Emilio Pagan, the guys who have shown that they have really solid skills. They've been successful in closer roles. They should have the job to start the season. And then you draft them. You just hope the skills win out. You hope that they start the, the season off well to give themselves a little bit of a leash for when they inevitably have a couple slip-ups. And I think that's the way that you're going to find value because then you're able to, to pick up some of the great hitters that are going to be available around pick 120 with the amount of depth that's available for hitters or with like pitchers, right? Like you could choose between Jesus Lazardo, Frankie Montes, Zach Wheeler, Danielson Lamette, Eduardo Rodriguez, Zach Gallen, or getting your first close if, if the ADP stay the same, right? And I'm sure that all of us who are on here love one of those guys that I just mentioned. And they're going to be able to have a much bigger impact on your team, at least like, um, you know, if they're successful, then I think a closer will. And so uh, I am going to be waiting on the closers to happen. I also think that the guys who get dropped because of because they might get traded, I think those are guys to target as well. Target them, pick them up. And as the season progresses and we get closer to the trade deadline, try to identify if there's a clear backup closer with solid skills and try to roster them early on so that you have a little bit of, of protection for that pick, right? And if you're mm-hmm. drafting a guy beyond pick 200 to do that, then I think you're in a situation where, you know, you don't, um, uh, you know, you're like, you, you don't have a problem moving on. Um, and then I also think that like, there's a lot of situations similar to what the twins had last year yes. and a variety of other guys, like the Royals had it as well. I think there's a bunch of teams murky closer situations and that pushes the closures to go in in the 200 range like use your draft picks in a fab league to go after two or three of those guys and know that there's going to be guys who show up on the waiver wire in those first couple weeks because they're getting playing time maybe somebody's released maybe somebody's traded maybe somebody's performs really well whatever it is trust yourself to to be diligent on the waiver wire and to be able to you know get those two closer possibilities on that one team, see how it shakes out and then be fine moving on from that guy who, who, who didn't get the job. And so I think, um, you know, I think the way to go is to wait for closures. I feel pretty strongly um, about doing that as the way, um, as the way to win. Again, it depends on what your league standings are. It depends on um, a lot of different things, but especially in leagues, um, you know, where uh, in deeper leagues and in leagues where, um, you know, there's an overall competition, I definitely want to be getting some value from those relievers and not wasting a high draft pick on them. Well, like they say, in the overall competitions, you can't punt saves. So you got to make sure you get them. Um, and you mentioned guys going late, like Archie Bradley's the closer now. He's 191. Brandon Workman, for those that don't know, go look at his numbers. He was insanely good for Boston. And he wasn't really talked about at all, like because he was always it was always him or a couple other options. Workman was very very good, and he's going about pick one ninety six. Uh, Ian Kennedy two seventeen yeah. is not pretty. He's going at a value. Sean Doodles Doolittle is going to regain the role. He's going to two twenty five. He's one of the best closers in baseball. Had some injuries last year that kind of masked an overall good season. Didn't make it look as good. Um, it goes on and on and on. If you look at just go down the list of options here at the relief pitching position. And then you can take your darts. Does Keona Kella get the job in Pittsburgh? Um, so on and so forth. So there are some definitely later options that are quite intriguing at the position. But even, you know, pick 150 to 200, there's a good 12 closers that you can definitely load up on and, and get some damage instead of taking some different things. So, yeah, I like your approach. We're pretty much on the same page there. 
Uh, the only guy I got to talk myself out of not taking early. If, if I'm if I'm taking anybody early, it's guys like uh, Chapman or Roberto Asuna. Those are two of the most consistent guys in all of baseball when it comes to closing. So uh, they're locked down good, but I love the concept like you mentioned. Get your hitters that are very, very good. Get your closers later. Work the wire, so on and so forth. It uh, makes it very interesting. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. Like Mark Melanson is going to pick 232 right now. Oh, Mark uh, Melanson, draft him. Yeah, Joe Jimenez, 233. Giovanni Gallegos could get the start of uh, the closing job in St. Louis, 228. Uh, very interesting stuff. And we'll have to see how the numbers keep changing as the draft season goes along. And but, that, uh, that's one thing that I think is going to be super interesting is right now, I mean, the fact that the first closer goes at pick 75 – Yes. And normally that bulk of that bulk, that first big run of closers goes around like pick 95 to 105. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's now like, you know, 50 ish. Um, yeah. Like one it's going late that, that like, yeah, that, that starts off with Hendricks around 130, at least an NFBC ADP. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, like it's going a lot later. It's going to be interesting to see whether that continues as the season gets closer because, because people are thinking, Hey, you know, those, those, those guys aren't a sure thing at the top because of what happened with Diaz and, and Trinan. Um, again, that's not usual, but I think the position in general uh, just has so much, uh, so much variance and is so dependent on role that, um, that it's hard to invest a ton in it. Yeah, it definitely is. It'll be fun to look at more as more ADP and data comes out to kind of get a feel how things go. Cause like you mentioned that run, especially in the draft champions usually goes earlier because guys want to lock in secure saves where they can, or load up late. So it's kind of a weird flow going through the draft right now compared to most years. But we'll see how things keep changing as those go. And then the onlines will start up here, I think, in January. Get an idea on the fab leagues, how guys see things going. And some more uh, trades and signings might alter some things as well. So time will tell in that picture. But for now, that'll wrap us up on this episode. Any parting thoughts, Toby? Uh, no, just thank you and thank the listeners for uh, putting up with my uh, sickness and my coughing and my sniffling and my sneezing. I promise I'm not contagious via pi- podcast, um, but uh, I really uh, appreciate everybody listening as usual. I hope everybody's doing well. And it's lovely that it's, you know, just turned December and I feel like there's just so much chatter around yes. baseball and fantasy baseball. The hot stove is on, on fire-ish. Um, and with the GM meetings coming up or the winter meetings coming up, um, you know, it's going to get, it's going to get heated up even more. It'll be really interesting to see uh, what develops now between trades and big signings and things like that. It'll be an exciting little time. No doubt about it. There's uh, a lot more talk than usual on the Twitter, which is great. Uh, the, the hot stove usually doesn't get going this soon. So lots of great stuff in that respect. And uh, let's keep, keep an eye on it. We'll keep you posted here on the podcast. But for now, Toby's on Twitter at BatFlipCrazy. I'm at BDintrick, and the podcast is Bubba and the Batflip, episode 16 in the books. Catch you guys later.